0: Hello and welcome to the Voice of Reason podcast. This is Benjamin Boyce and today's guest is Sasha Ayad, who is a licensed professional counselor working specifically with gender questioning teens. Today's discussion between Sasha and myself is about parental strategies in dealing with a gender questioning child. And as ever, if you want to vote this up or give it a review on your podcast platform of choice, I hear that that helps me boost the ratings or helps with discovery or something like that. Also, if you want to take a gander at the people that I'm discussing all these issues with, go ahead and visit my YouTube channel where our faces are represented along with our words. All that being said, here's Sasha Ayad.
1: There's a lot of interesting changes kind of happening in the world of gender-questioning adolescents. Like, I'm starting to see a lot more boys, um, or talk to parents of boys, um... So that's a little bit different in terms of the demographics that we've seen, as you'll probably realize a lot of people who talk about rapid onset are talking about girls. It used to be around 30, 70 split, but like I'm starting to see more parents of boys, um, sometimes older guys, like even guys in their 20s and 30s, sometimes after like a really intense relational issue, like a divorce or a breakup or getting rejected from a school, like stuff like that. Then suddenly like a trans identity, so very interesting um, yeah. changes. And I've been hearing from other people that they're seeing more boys. So we obviously have any have... thoughts
0: on that. Why um, a relationship or an emotional uh, trauma would cause a male to begin to question the uh, sexual substrate, I guess not sexual, but the gender substrate of his identity?
1: You know, um, I'm not really sure. I mean, I can't say anything definitively, but it seems to me that a lot of young people are trying to escape the discomfort of their current life. You know, I had a client once tell me, Being anything was better than being who I used to be, you know So I don't know if it's so much just about gender in some cases I think in some cases just like how do I become a new person? Like obviously this old me is not doing very well I don't know how to handle this life Perhaps I can be reborn like as a new person And um, it it gets built on this fantasy of like starting a new identity and, And kind of a new life in a way. So Mm -hmm. I think sometimes it could be that. Um, In some cases for males, there's also um, perhaps a component that has to do with maybe early experiences of cross-dressing or maybe an erotic component that a lot of boys feel a great deal of shame about. So to kind of escape that shame they might try to rationalize well the reason i did that is because really i'm a girl trapped in a guy body like that's possible too i've seen cases like that yeah um
0: but it seems agp
1: yeah
0: cluster or whatever
1: yeah yeah Hmm. um so i i don't know i think a lot of people are using um gender identity to escape or like as an avoidance strategy to dealing with the challenging uncomfortable painful traumatic aspects of their existence in their natal sex and so hmm. i see that as being my understanding on on many of the cases
0: one thing about that is that even though it's kind of an external fixation it's still really close to the self it's how i It's where it's the boundary line between myself and and the world. And so if I focus on that, that's kind of like me working on the inside and working on the outside. It's you're working on that Lyman or that that demilitarized zone kind of place between the internal and the external.
1: Because it's still I mean, if you think about what everybody wants, usually is self-transformation. Right? Regardless of if you're dealing with a gender issue or not. And so this is a very concrete way to transform oneself, both from a psychological point of view, because taking on the identity of the other sex is definitely a psychological transformation, but it's also physical. And there's something that is very, I I think, kind of primal about altering oneself physically in order to transcend and, you know, become a better version of oneself or someone who's better, you know, prepared to face the world or more confident. You always hear kids say, I'll just be more confident. Mm. So that reminds Hmm. me of kind of like rites of passage. And we've talked about this a little bit, but this self transformation is a really, really powerful motivator. And, you know, in some cases it's self transformation in a way that is, seen as like a positive and just to become more aligned with who you feel yourself to be like i think some trans people have really done a lot of that kind of grappling and trying to understand and are perhaps becoming more aligned with who they feel themselves to be but at least in the rogd cases what i see much more often is just an avoidance of something a running away from something Mm -hmm. that doesn't feel as mature of kind of a self-development as Mm -hmm. As is appropriate, especially if you're going to do life-altering and body-altering procedures.
0: Yeah. So... Is there a a way... It doesn't seem like you think this way, but this is Jungian, and there's that concept of the animus and the anima, and coming into a harmonious relationship with one's internal feminine or internal masculine. Does that truck at all for you is that useful at all is that too yeah i mean i
1: don't want to use the terms incorrectly because this is not my area of expertise so i have been reading a lot of young lately in the last year or so um i think what what's often happening because it really requires a certain level of emotional maturity to be able to look at the internal masculine and feminine try to balance them in a way that is grounded and healthy and still tethered to reality right but a lot of the cases of kids that I see, it seems like they're trying to kill the, oh, yeah. you know, the anima, let's say, in the cases of um, people who are trying to become more um, masculine. So I, mm. I don't see it as being a mature way of kind of balancing these two opposing forces. I often see it as like a desperate attempt to squash hmm. one or the other. mm mm-hmm. Because Um, that
0: can be construed as the seat of one's uh, trauma or despair, especially with, uh, let's say, uh, somebody, a female who undergoes uh, sexual harassment or abuse and then decides to to jump to the the male or being a male. Mm -hmm. I've talked uh, with the uh, peak resilience uh, females. They speak about that, about uh, Mm -hmm. if I get away from being a a woman that I get away from that negative attention and get away from having to deal with the vulnerability and all that kind of thing.
1: Um, Yeah, I think that's a great point. And what I find really interesting about that is there is a spectrum of behavior that people do to girls and women, that ranges from a flirtation, which a 12-year-old might find terribly uncomfortable, yeah. though we can't say she's being abused, let's say, right, all the way up to women who have been in literally an abusive, domineering, dangerous relationships with men. Okay. And yeah. that entire spectrum can land on people differently. There are some women who have been um, through horrific kind of abuse situations that for some reason are able to come out on the other end, not become defined by it, find a sense of resilience and survivorhood, let's say, and move on. Hmm. And then some other girls may find themselves in situations where they've never technically been abused, let's say, but little experiences in which their femininity feels threatening to them Hmm. become completely overwhelming and they try to run in the opposite direction so we have to be careful when we say oh well some of these cases are from trauma and abuse some are yeah but that also doesn't necessarily mean there's a one-to-one correlation with experiencing trauma and being traumatized in the same way
0: yeah yeah
1: absolutely right and a lot of you know 12 year old girls whether they're struggling with gender identity or not feel very bewildered when for the first time if they've begun to develop you know secondary sex characteristics the world starts to interact with girls differently and a lot of times these girls have not even developed their own sense of sexuality in any way. And what I mean by that is they may not even have crushes yet. So they're not sexual beings at all. Hmm. But then all of a sudden the world starts to impose sexuality onto them if, you know, they start getting noticed by boys or someone pops their bra strap. Or even in some cases, you know, fifteen year olds get hit on by thirty year olds, and that's terribly bewildering. Hmm. So, you know, my perspective is that As clinicians we have to be very careful in teasing apart those types of experiences because if you just hear a a woman say or a young girl say well I'm just not comfortable being a girl that is a statement that doesn't really tell us a lot about what else is going on and if you realize that perhaps this is a young girl who has just not figured out how to deal with this type of sexual attention yet it's not easy it takes decades I mean, there are yeah. adult women who still have no idea how to manage and respond to sexual attention from both men and women. Like not just women who are lesbians, but like women project all kinds of sexuality onto each other. You mm-hmm. know? Mm-hmm. Her shirt's too tight or she looks like slut. Like all of these comments are still sexual in nature.
0: Yeah.
1: So that running away from that seems to be a really big factor in a lot of the young women that I see, though they're not articulating it that way, but that's my clinical impression of what I'm observing.
0: Well, one of the things uh, that feminists generally speak about is toxic masculinity. And there might be something to be said about that. I I see the term is kind of abused a lot, so I don't like using it, but I would much prefer we go back to speaking about positive masculinity, such as chivalry or gentlemanliness. Yeah. And it seems like the tearing down or the deconstruction of chivalry of certain sorts of uh, masculinized, uh, f- formalized masculine behavior that is upright, that that is self-controlled, and then is, yeah. is being deconstructed because it, it in its original construction, it was built upon the polarity of a female acting in a certain way. Like there's a there's a way that that females act, and there's a way that m- yeah. males act, and and when they act together, then they can have like a you know a, a chivalrous society. But it, it right. depends on both. So the deconstruction of what a woman should be has also undermined what a man should be. It seems like to me like that. Those two things could be reconstructed in a much more fluid way that yeah. so, aren't so constricting, but still have the effect on society of men not uh, men controlling that sexualization of the women and the women kind of taking up some of the work by not sexualizing themselves and each other by dress codes and stuff like that. But I know that's impossible nowadays. I, I know yeah. it's even the suggestion itself is sexist.
1: Well, it's so hard because. When we when we look at these concepts and try to intellectually deconstruct them we can easily fall in the trap of throwing the baby out with the bathwater, right? So what I hear you saying is like there might have been some value to something like chivalry, let's say, which is a man treating women with some kind of standard of respectability and not crossing certain boundaries and perhaps, you know, assisting women in certain ways. But if we look at that as, let's say, that's framed from the perspective that women were thought to be fragile, right? And so that's why men had to do that. And then we say, well, women aren't essentially fragile, so let's throw everything away. But then we've thrown away some standards on how would be better for men to relate to women. We certainly don't want men I mean, I've heard like some MRAs kind of say, well, if women want to be treated the same, let's punch them in the face, because that's what I do to a man. I
0: love your (laughs) MRA voice.
1: Thank you. I've been working on that, actually. (laughs) Um, But we, you know, we end up discarding all of these rules or or norms that may have some value in them if we can reframe them from a way that respects the fact that both men and women have moments of vulnerability and fragility. like we all can Im- can experience those those feelings or pos- perhaps those um, positions relative to others in, in our social circle. So yeah. we just can't throw everything away.
0: Well I wonder if the answer isn't somehow that the those norms have to be reinvented on the individual level every single time. So yeah. one interacts with the world knowing that the world is a multicultural world has a, a number of different norms and is able to see when they when they're interacting with somebody the set of normativity that they are projecting and not necessarily take a front to that just I guess I could I I see so many wrong ways of me being interpreted but just say that a woman uh, a a young woman or a maturing woman is being looked at and interacted with coarsely from a man and then kind of just thinks of him as of a lower caste than her mm-hmm. like she he he's not worth my vulnerability because he's he's not treating me he he doesn't mm-hmm. have a value set that is actually on par with who I actually am and so kind of like this this distancing from that attention in a way by seeing him as
1: oh we already have that it's called toxic masculinity
0: well yeah but then that's everywhere I mean, and everything <laughs> yeah
1: I mean, it's, it's okay. a it's a way okay. to categorize somebody else so as to not take their behavior personally
0: okay I yeah. Think. yeah i
1: think sometimes it doesn't work because what still happens is we have all these these labels just evolve and change, you know? Like, maybe we would have called this guy a hooligan in the past. I don't know. I'm not, yeah, like, yeah. a linguistic okay. historian, right? But the word toxic masculinity is a way to stamp a guy and say, you know, you aren't worthy of interacting in And we're actually saying you don't belong in society at all, which there may be a place to say, you know, really aggressive sexualized behavior is a bad idea. We don't want that in our culture. Um, but that's a way to kind of say... Your behavior is the problem. Yeah. But does it does it necessarily help the woman to feel like she okay. can exist in the world? That's my question. Okay. Yeah. If we attribute all of this behavior to toxic masculinity, and we also are assuming, well, toxic masculinity is bad and dangerous, and we have to eradicate it, do we then send women out into the world who are terrified of everybody? Because a lot of behaviors can now be classified as toxic masculinity.
0: Yeah we spoke so about that last. Where do week. we
1: draw the line, yeah. you know? Yeah.
0: Well, again, I think it comes down to the individual's responsibility of being able to develop the tools to distance themselves from something that feels traumatizing to them. Yeah. Um, and and I guess like the whole project of psychology is the slowing down of one's reactions to a state where one can view the causation of what is happening and what is causing me this pain yeah. and yeah. and and it seems like because the world is awash with information and awash with ideologies these ideologies have they they always have a grain of truth they match up to reality but then they get misused quite a bit where somebody isn't really slowly slowly like looking at the causation and not using that ideology, let's just say toxic masculinity or patriarchy to define everything, but on an individual basis, using that as a stepping stone to to understand what does that other person really want from me mm. or, or doing to me? And, and where is the danger? Where's the level of danger and where's the level of me actually being degraded by that person's viewing of me?
1: Yeah, that that's, um, That takes a great deal of maturity. I mean, how many teenagers really can do that? And to be able to recognize also that some of this behavior that is kind of being projected onto me, it's not really about me. This is about this person and maybe the... Kind of way they interact with all females or all people who look like me or all, you know, people within their workspace or whatever the case may be. So, you know, this idea that, like, how much of this is really about me and how much of this is the other person working out their own shit? Yeah. Not everything is about someone trying to degrade you. Sometimes a person is working out their own weird stuff yeah. With, yeah. with women and females in general.
0: Yeah. So... This is just a random thought but I grew up kind of sheltered and I was really shocked when I was t- about 19 20 and started like looking at the world and seeing like mm-hmm. how it w- how it worked because before then I'd been pretty much in very small little Christian circles and and kind of uh, there was always a barrier around me in understanding what the world was and yeah. and m- the stories that were used to describe the world kind of describe the world as this thing that wants to consume you. It's a vampire. It's a, I don't want to trigger anybody. It's a whore, you know, like the, the, the biblical language of something that, that wants to degrade you by, by feeding upon your desires for it. And then when I started to interact with the world, I kind of went through this really wild experimental phase, but I really did, I, I kind of, I resented a little bit of not understanding how the world was because I was given these chunky versions of it, this cartoonish version of it. But I yeah. still, after going through that, I was really uh, I was really glad that I had such a long time of being able to deal with the world without, or just deal with myself and develop myself without being subjected to too much kind of uh, wild influences and stuff like that. So I was thinking about... When it's it's almost impossible now, so for I can see how parents want to shelter their children in order to give them the the time to really mature to a certain degree or in a certain way before having to do the maturation of interacting with the world like that. Yeah, but with the world kind of leaking in through all these devices, um, that that might be a fraught project.
1: Yeah, this is um, this is very hard. And what, what I think is the most important thing is not just what you can keep out of your kid's consciousness, let's say, but it's what is the connection between you and your child so that as an adult, you can help them process this, Hmm. Hmm. that maturity and that development that needs to happen has to happen within the context of a close connection with some sort of a mentor parent figure. You don't throw a kid into a forest with no adult figures and they're not going to mature to become the same type of 18 year old that would have matured in the context of like a close knit loving, you know, intelligent family that can help them. Yeah. So, you know, to if we're going to kind of shift over to parenting, like the number one thing that parents need to be thinking about if their teen is starting to question their gender out of the blue is not necessarily like, let me talk them out of this, but how can I stay as connected as possible? Because you can't control what goes on. Well, you can't control what goes into your kid's mind. You also can't control what's happening in their mind. If you're not actually in relationship with them.
0: Yeah. And maybe even control is the wrong kind of
1: control is not the right word, but they try to control input in and out. And some parents try to, You know, because with a lot of these kids, this identity comes on so rapidly that parents are like, well, maybe in the same amount of time I can get them out of this, like help them just kind of get back to the course they were on to begin with. So some parents do try to go in and just shut down this questioning that their child is doing in that way. They may be trying to control it. Not in a malicious way, but just in a way that like if you saw someone you love like veer in a very bizarre track and start demanding like hormones and surgery, you would want to help them get back on track.
0: Yeah.
1: Um, so that, that next... concept
0: of questioning then kind of leads us to what does it mean to process or to co-process uh, with somebody with a loved one, especially a child from a parent's position?
1: Well, I guess it depends on a lot of different factors. Of course, their age, you know, like the type of conversation you're going to be able to have with a 12 year old is not the same as an 18 year old. Um, The connection that you have with your child will make a difference. But I don't even know if processing is the first goal. I think the first goal Mm -hmm. should be parents have to recognize that their child is undergoing one of the most confusing periods in their life. Questioning your gender is an all-consuming kind of thing. And peak resilience girls talk about this. Like, it's not something that kids do very flippantly, as though, even though to adults it may look like this very nonchalant, like, okay. how could you all of a sudden question your gender, right? But parents have to remember, in their teenage mind, this is a really, really big deal. So to first just kind of very lovingly, very kindly say, look, I see that this is a struggle you're going through and I don't know what this means, but we're going to get through this together. I'm here for you. Like that would be the baseline. In some cases, you know, this idea of processing may not even be necessary. I've spoken with some families who their kid is like, let's say 12 or 13. They're kind of struggling socially, they discover the concept of gender identity online, and like, next day, they're like, mom and dad, I have to tell you something, you know, and sometimes parents say, you know what, this, I know this is bewildering, we're just going to table all this, we're not going to really go down this path, you're a kid, let's not focus on gender, that's too much stuff to think about, just let's get back to normal life, focus on school, and sometimes kids actually act very relieved. You know, imagine how daunting it is at 12 to rethink your entire existence, right? So sometimes you don't need to process if parents find themselves in that type of a situation. Sometimes just kind of tabling it and saying, we're not really going to do this exploration. We're just going to focus on being a normal kid. Um, So in those cases, processing isn't necessary, but... When you have most of the cases I deal with are families who feel very, very stuck and some kind of processing is going to be necessary. Um, what,
0: do, what do we mean by processing then? Is that just uh, going over these concepts and ideas and expanding on them and unpacking them? And
1: um, Well, by processing I mean helping your teen to actively consider the multiple things that could be going on because nobody else is going to do it. So we are in like a time period right now where schools, doctors, therapists, friends, the internet is mostly approaching the kid from the perspective of like, oh, yay, you found your true identity. Let's support you in transitioning.
0: Okay.
1: I mean, that's the, that's the majority of responses from anybody who hears about a teen questioning their gender.
0: Which just still blows my mind. I mean, I understand that it's there, but it just blows my mind that like the reduction of of complexity to that narrow of a viewpoint, just like, how did we get to the point where people think that that's acceptable? But I think we've already spoken about that. It's just...
1: Well, I think they think that they're like saving the kid from a transphobic world. You know, like if you can be that teacher who the kid's like, oh, Mr. So-and-so is the only person who understands me at home. Nobody believes me. You know, it's, it's a little bit of a savior complex, I think. Not that people are doing that on purpose, but I do think there's a a phenomenon there of like adults feeling like they're going to step in and like save this trans kid's life Mm -hmm. and protect
0: them and then help them get on with this true identity thing.
1: Be part of somebody awakening to their real self. I mean, that feels so important. (laughs) Um, Hmm. But so when I say processing, I mean like just providing a place where your kid is going to encounter different types of questions than they're getting from everywhere else. But that is only possible if the connection is really strong. So, you know, a lot of times parents find themselves in a situation where they don't even recognize their kid anymore. And I don't just mean aesthetically. A lot of kids who discover, you know, a new identity online will change personality-wise pretty rapidly. I hear all the time, like, you know, she was struggling a little bit, but she went from like a pretty happy, like loving girl to being incredibly angry and being against us and being really oppositional. So it's hard for parents to stay connected with their child when they feel like I don't even recognize this person anymore. Okay. Huh. Um, So I, I often will just encourage parents to think big picture, right? Like, your daughter might be saying, I'm a boy, I'm a boy, I'm a boy. But let's think big picture as adults. She may consider herself a boy forever. But it's also possible that right now this is something she's latching on to because she's really struggling. So don't get too caught up with this like power struggle about no, you're not, no, you're not.
0: Okay. You have to still
1: Ooh. see your daughter. You know, even if she's cut her hair, even if she's wearing a binder and a flannel button-down, Look in her eyes. Do you still see your kid there? And that's who you stay connected to. You know, don't get like swept away by the facade or the persona. Mm-hmm. So staying connected with who you believe your kid to be without rubbing their nose in it. You know, you don't mm-hmm. want to keep like rubbing their nose in the fact that you don't agree with their identity.
0: Okay.
1: Yeah. Does that make sense?
0: Yeah. Yeah. You give them less to resist. Yeah. And so the the resistance can be offloaded into something that's not between you two, but a third object or something that that can be focused on together. Like, uh, it just reminds me, I think I've spoken about this before, but it reminds me of, like, being on a playground with a kid who falls down and scrapes their knee, and there's a lot of blood, but it's not that big of a wound, but they're in a great panic. And the way that I learned how to deal with the kid would be to recognize the kid and recognize the the wound but mm-hmm. but do it in such a way that we're both looking at the wound together like we're yes. the wound isn't between us, but like we're we're able to deal with the pain in a way that that it's kind of abstracted from the whole world it's not the whole world, but if you run and make a big deal of the pain, it makes it a bigger deal, and then you have to deal with all this stuff that doesn't have to do with that actual yeah. pain,
1: yeah, totally. And in, in this analogy, the the running in and getting all overwhelmed by the pain, I guess a parallel to that would be parents who run in and try to rationally debate their kids out of their identity.
0: Hmm.
1: They're getting, They're getting kind of swept up in the persona and they're not thinking big picture. So I don't yeah. recommend mm. just a ton of like debates. Mm -hmm. with your with your kid
0: Mm -hmm. because Um, they're they're not thinking on that level they're they're very much likely not thinking on that level so that level of thinking is not necessarily going to do much of anything
1: right and what's interesting too is like sometimes parents by being the inquisitors and the critics and the questioners they position their kid in such a way that they have to defend they they become you know someone who has to try to prove parents wrong And if you find your kid in that kind of situation, that's not a good look, because kids trying to do something just to prove mom and dad wrong, they can really dig their heels in. Yeah. And that doesn't benefit the kid at all.
0: Well, unless they end up growing up to be a prosecutor of some sort, then they're getting those skills along the way. But
1: yeah. 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 And and if, if somebody really does end up benefiting from a trans identity, it's probably not in opposition to what their parents wanted. You know, like, I don't think you can find your true identity by saying, fuck you, mom and dad, like, this is who I am. You find your true identity by actually distancing yourself from the opinion of parents and really looking at your own self and what you really value and what you want. And it's mm-hmm. not necessarily like either in opposition to or because of what your parents want you to do. Mm-hmm, hmm and I, that's, that could happen at 14. Anyway, I'm talking about like young adults and adult people.
0: Okay. Okay. So keeping the connection and then dealing within that connection, dealing with the issue in a way that doesn't conflate the issue, but is an issue that mm-hmm. we together as a family can work through. So in a way it, really kind of brings home the fact to me that the child is there to teach the parent about all the processing that they haven't done with regards to the world themselves. It seems like the parent has to really grow up in order to be mature enough to lend that maturity to the child in a way.
1: That's a weird way of putting it. (laughs) Let me think about that. I mean, I think even the best-equipped parents never hmm. anticipate that this is going to be a conflict with their child. I mean, unless they have, they have a child who's had gender dysphoria from a young age. Like, most of the parents that I work yeah. with are absolutely blindsided. Mm-hmm. So it just throws them completely off kilter. And all of the kind of typical parenting instincts that they would normally draw upon just don't even feel relevant anymore especially when you have an entire medical industry who's telling them well you're just transphobic you need to start accepting your new son
0: mm-hmm.
1: so imagine how bewildering that is for parents it's just like such a strange situation for them to find themselves in so, so most of them have a lot of parenting sk- um, parenting instincts and maturity but this is just such a strange experience that a lot of times they feel very unsure of themselves all of a sudden.
0: Yeah, well, that's one of the particular queernesses queernesses about this <laughs> whole topic. It's that it, it's been formed in these think tanks and, and in the margins of society through all this theory. And then all of a sudden it's just kind of... Yeah. Yeah. Rushed out from the corners into the mainstream. And so now we have a bunch of kids who naturally latch on to that, which is cutting edge. Uh, and then it brings it into the parents purview when they had no idea that this was the thing. So it very rapidly becomes something that s- society at large needs to, I, I
1: sure. think
0: we're participating.
1: Yeah, yeah for sure. Right now. And nobody knows really how yet we're just figuring that out. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, I, I tell parents all the time, there's no manual for this, you know, as a therapist, I'm using my best clinical judgment based on what I know about adolescents And I'm sharing with parents things I'm picking up along the way, but there is no formula for like how to best support kids who are going through this. Mm-hmm. Um, so a lot of it is, um, kind of emerging, emerging information as we As I work with the population, as other clinicians and I share information, as parents report back what's happened with their kids' cases, it's an emergent population, therefore we have like an emergent kind of strategy for how to help them. So, you know, so connection is the most important thing. But of course, that's not going to cut it for everything because there are some kids saying, look, mom, I need a binder. I need to change my pronouns at school. I need this. I need that. So you still have to address some Hmm. of these requests that kids are making.
0: Yeah. So is there a rule of thumb that you've developed? I mean, I know it's on a case to case basis, but like, I guess you give the parents the tools to kind of figure out. Yeah. How far to go with this. right? Yeah.
1: Yeah, so I'll talk about, um, I I have a video about this. It's called Boundaries, like how to set these types of boundaries with your kids. Hmm. If this is a kid who is pretty young, like let's say 15 and under, and they just kind of came up with the identity yesterday, you can kind of say, you know, you can set much firmer boundaries and say we're going to, let's say we'll table this for six months. Like I always recommend for parents Hmm. to take some time and think about it, get their own kind of emotional regulation together and have conversations with your kid that are thoughtful and heartfelt and based on care and based on long-term thinking. Um, But, you know, sometimes you can set firmer boundaries, especially around things like changing your name at school, you know, Never in the history of time have kids just decided what their name is going to be at school. This is like a really new thing. Hmm. So in those cases, parents can maybe set firmer boundaries, especially around things like binding, which is not shown to be safe. There are a lot of people who get pretty bad injuries from using binders. So, you know, based on long-term well-being, parents can say, like, no, we're not going to do that. I'm happy to show you why. Like, I've done my own research, and here are some websites we can look at together. But as your parent... My job is to look out for your well-being, so we're not going to do that. So that's like, you know, firmer boundary setting. If you have a teenager who, unbeknownst to you, for like two years, let's say, has been identifying as trans and has really come internally to see themselves as the other gender, you're not going to just be able to go in and set a bunch of boundaries. You're going to have to really work much more from a place of connection and curiosity and trying to be understanding, but also... Um, offering some challenging questions to your kid. So it really just depends on a lot of different dynamics. Mm -hmm.
0: Mm -hmm. How how has your idea of gender developed in dealing with this population and, and mulling this over? Like, Do you think it's emergent property? Do you think that... I mean, we've talked about how it's a way of dealing with trauma and stuff, but it seems like... Since our society right now is really struggling and has been for a while, what is this gender thing? What is male? What is female? What is man? What is woman? What's the construct? What's the biology? Well, I mean, maybe this is not a safe conversation because you can't really (laughs) come out with your your theory on that.
1: Well, I mean, I think I've been pretty open about my theory on that. I mean, I, I don't know, like one thing that I'm noticing is that the way an adult like yourself or myself is thinking about gender is so dramatically different from most of the teens that I work with. Hmm. So if we're going to keep the conversation more kind of geared towards the clinical population that I have experience with, they tend to think like all the time kids will say, well, I always kind of, like I had been jealous of boys before, but I didn't think you could pick your gender. So I just thought that I could never be a boy. But then when I discovered trans, I thought, oh, I can literally just become a boy. Okay. So I don't know if that really relates to your question, but
0: but within that frame of mind it's that the boys act in a way so like we already mentioned there's the wanting to become the boy to escape the female there's also the wanting to become a boy in order to have the freedoms that you know is perceived that boys have or the the ways of acting with Uh the world
1: yeah and i think in that case again a 14 or 15 or 16 year old brain does not have the ability to think in really complex ways about gender, and so if you if you imagine well, boys, you know, get to be more rambunctious, or they get to be louder, or they get to kind of be goofy and never be sexualized, hmm. and that's who I want to be. That's how I feel myself to be. Hmm. It's just so <clears throat> superficial hmm. and, and simplistic in a lot of ways. Um,
0: yeah, but
1: you know,
0: no, no, go ahead. It just seems again, for me, I liked how you said that the way that we think about gender is not necessarily the way that they're thinking about gender. So the real conversation is the ways of thinking about gender and having that conversation and seeing when people are thinking about gender in this way or in that way, regardless of what we actually think about the gender. But for me, it goes back to, I, I perceive to use your example, I'm a female. I perceive that boys are able to be goofy
1: mm-hmm.
0: and and maybe get away with being goofy. And instead of working on the skill of being witty, I just work on the skill of becoming a boy. Yes. So it, it, it overskips, again, it overskips, like, identity doesn't matter. Skill is what matters. Again, yeah. the skill is is the truth. The skill is the reality. The the work and not the belief or the faith or that that ideal of the man is what the man is is how mm-hmm. he behaves and stuff.
1: And and when a when a guy is goofy, how does the world respond to him versus when a girl is goofy, okay. how does the world respond to her? And and that's really okay. if you want to think about it as skills, girls are going to need a, a skill to manage the fact that their goofiness might be perceived differently than a man's goofiness. Mm
0: mm-hmm. mm. Mm-hmm.
1: A guy being really goofy and mooning his friends and running across the football field with his pants down is going to get a totally different reaction from a girl. Okay. Okay? I was just thinking
0: puns, but yeah, okay. (laughs) Not buns. All right.
1: (laughs) Man buns and female buns get a totally different reaction in the world.
0: Well, yeah, even gravity interacts with them differently. (laughs) Yeah.
1: So that is yeah. not an easy okay. thing to that's parse true. out as a teenager. Yeah. And yeah. I think they feel that that's so unfair. Like, why is it that I will never be able to be goofy like that guy, even though I'm goofy as a person? Yeah. Okay. And and these are the limitations. These are the okay. limitations of reality. And they Ooh. may not be fair. Yeah. But how do we deal with the real life way that you will be interacted with as a female. And if you are a a very attractive, pretty female that a lot of boys like, that's going to be different than if you're a female who girls make fun of for not being cute. Like All of these things are going to be different, and it requires a great deal of maturity and self-compassion to navigate Mm. the world as a girl. And boys have a different set of ways that that's true too. But I'm thinking about the things that some girls find unfair about gender
0: you brought up a wonderful phrase I want you to expand on it you said self-compassion how how do we how do we nourish that within ourselves nurture that I guess
1: well first of all people have to be willing and um, actually compassionate towards their emotions all of the things that we're talking about really are understood by a person as various emotional states that one finds himself in or herself in in this case when a girl is goofing around with her friends and her friends say oh you're friends with jason you like him like that's a teenage thing i work with teenagers she is in that moment experiencing maybe embarrassment or maybe frustration or maybe he's just my friend. Why are they saying that? Like all of these experiences are going to come up in her as emotions. And if she is unable to befriend the emotion that she has, Hmm. perhaps embarrassment, she's going to try to figure out ways to avoid that from ever happening again. So how do you do that? Maybe you start being mean to Jason so that he's not your friend anymore. Maybe you start saying, I hate Jason gross. Maybe you start saying, Well, I hate being a girl because I can't even just be friends with my friends anymore. So all of that is perhaps to avoid the feelings of embarrassment that came up for her in that kind of social situation.
0: Well, how does one befriend their embarrassment?
1: Well, you start... Well, this is about kind of uh, regulating your physiological response to emotion. So a lot of people... Feel very uncomfortable when, let's say, they get a lump in their throat and they're about to start crying. Can you just recognize that I'm feeling sad, I'm feeling embarrassed, I might start crying? Maybe that's not the worst thing in the world. Having emotions doesn't have to be some sort of a tragedy or hmm. something to be terrified of. And in adolescence, emotions are gigantic. So it is very much um an overwhelming emotional experience to be an adolescent when yeah. you're having all of these things come up you know so much is changing about your life your sense of self your social relationships so it's just a, a roller coaster of emotions hmm. so teaching kids that it's normal to have emotions and that it's okay to feel overwhelmed it's okay to be crying in your room all night cuz that's what happens to teenage girls sometimes You know, so I I think we talked about this a little bit with parents, too. Like I try to normalize really big emotions for kids and I try to help parents understand it's okay if your teenager seems like a bit of a mess sometimes because that's part of what being a teenager is.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's giving it's not something that we want to run away from those big emotions. Mm -hmm. I just I remember in my in my own life, it doesn't happen too much, but every once in a while it still happens where I will be overwhelmed with an emotion. Like it's a form of ego death. You know, it reminds me of, there's so many great scenes in movies where the protagonist is facing this big beast and just kind of says, no, you know, like this huge dragon or this big wolf or something. And the protagonist says, no. And that just kind of reminds me or makes me think of these emotions completely dominate me But the way that I dominate them back is not in kind. It's by becoming the human or the master in that relationship and and bringing that to heal and facing it and showing it that I'm not afraid of you. It it goes back to like there's a lot of even horror movies where Mm -hmm. if if you don't Mm -hmm. respond to the, the terror, the terror doesn't have any power over you. And there's something about interacting with that overwhelming emotion that could stand to be a little glamorized or, or or give give credit to somebody who has the capacity to feel something that is something to, you know, take pride in, that, that you're able to not just face it, you need to learn how to face it, but that you're even having that experience. Is, it's a precious experience. It's a part of being human that is absolutely essential to informing yes. you about what it is to be alive.
1: Yeah, and maybe it's not a dragon. Maybe it's not a monster. Maybe it's, like, your Hmm. body living a really intense experience you're going through. Yeah, yeah. And that's not something that's going to kill you. You know, like, big emotions, Hmm. they come and they go. You know, we can have an hour where somebody is just, like, wailing in so much pain, and they're totally, all their senses are overwhelmed by this big feeling. And then the next hour, they may be calm, you know? Hmm. So, some of the techniques that I use to help kids befriend their emotions is a lot of kind of, um, I talk them through visualizations where maybe they'll scan their body and they'll think about a time that made them anxious. They'll locate where the anxiety is in their body. We might describe it using almost like a five senses model. So, you know, if you're feeling this anxiety in your chest, you know, what texture is it? Does it have a texture? Is it smooth? Is it rough? Does it have a weight? Does it have a shape? You know, does it have a color to it? And by doing that, you kind of help the person to realize this emotion is just a thing. It it does live in my body. It's here, but it's not necessarily something I have to be terrified of. So those are just different ways of kind of befriending emotions. And also, um, I learned this really cool technique called resourcing, where if you do Um, locate the the difficult or challenging emotion in your body, you find another part of your body that's expressing calm or peacefulness or something that's the opposite of the overwhelming emotion. Hmm. So what that indicates is that in, in one moment of time, a person can be both totally overwhelmed by an emotion, but also find within them a place of calm, a place of stability. Those are all ways to be with hard emotions and not run away from
0: them. Mm -hmm. Uh, Why do we run away from our emotions? Uh, It it just seems so weird that that we're having an experience and we would want to run away from it. And it seems like that is the wrong, you're making, are you making a hard kind of prescriptive or descriptive statement that you, you should not ever run away from your emotions?
1: Not if it becomes a strategy or a pattern that you use all the time. I mean, if you're in the middle of class, let's say, and a kid, like, whispers something mean to you, you may not be able to just bust out crying for an hour. Like, maybe you have to get it together in the moment. Yeah. But if you never face your emotions with self-compassion and with recognizing that, like, this is a necessary part of human Experience having emotions, if that becomes your kind of modus operandi, I guess, and you're always just dodging emotions by distracting yourself or um, running away by, I don't know, kids aren't self-medicating that much. Some kids are like getting high all the time, whatever the case may be. Mm-hmm. Then you're, you're not going to be able to function very well as a mm-hmm. person. Mm-hmm.
0: So with regards to gender questioning or the, gender dysphoria or, and a gender dysphoria that we can say doesn't necessarily come from a childhood all the way up persistent, just kind of like a more the rapid onset. Okay. Gender dysphoria to, to use all these skills that we've been talking about to, to slowly like break down and digest what is actually going on um, by situating it in the body, by, by finding like, where's the emotion coming from and, and slowing down and not, Not looking at this big gender switch thing, but like looking at my experience in a more small, discreet way to then build up to a bigger uh, map. It seems like the I want to be a boy, I want to be a girl is like this grand narrative that, if not really processed, just is a way of decreasing the complexity of life by, by imposing a narrative on it. And if that narrative isn't actually built up out of discrete discrete moments that are understood, it's going to topple down anyways. It's not going to be the right fit for you if you don't actually build up to it. Mm
1: -hmm. Maybe, maybe not. So I think something important that happens when, if a person becomes fixated on the fantasy of switching sexes, in doing so, they have also... Lost the opportunity to develop other kinds of strategies on how to live in their sex body So if being male is making you terribly uncomfortable, there's something about maleness. That's awful for you You fantasize about being a woman if you only kind of go down the the salience and attention route of switching your sex all of the ways that you might have found to deal with your maleness or to maybe modify certain things about the environment you find yourself in or how do you deal with people when they're interacting with you as a male. All of these ways that you might have dealt with your maleness have just disappeared. They're gone. Mm -hmm. You've said there's no other strategy. Here's the strategy. I'm going to pursue this fantasy of switching sex. So. That might actually work out for some people. Some people might transition and find like, oh, the problem of maleness is gone now because I pass enough as a female and people interact with me as a female. And so that issue is gone. Yeah. That might be fine. That may not topple. I don't know if it would. Yeah. Okay. But we also don't know in that person's life if they had allowed their mind to stay focused in the reality And let's say worked on, are there feelings of shame there? Are there feelings of not measuring up as a man? Are there feelings of disgust in the way men are interacting with each other? Like, what are those feelings? What are some other ways I can understand this? Am I beating myself up in a way? Am I like hating my own maleness because of something other people are doing? Let me be curious about that. Let me be more self-compassionate. Who knows where that could lead? (laughs) Mm
0: Mm-hmm. And just having that on the table as an option.
1: Yeah. But that—but look how, how hard that is. Yeah. It forces you to directly confront the one thing that is bothering you the most every day. For some people, you know, I'm thinking more of adults. I don't think this is as true for rapid onset kids, though it can become true. But... If your maleness is the one thing that's most bothering you, going down that kind of second path of inquiry requires you to sit in the shit of like this uncomfortable thing, hmm. perhaps for some time until you figure out a way to rework your situation or rework the way you're thinking or whatever. It's really hard work. I, yeah. I can't, you know, I can't say it's an easy path.
0: No, I don't think either path is easy. I think they both require a lot of dedication. But the thing is, is that the one theme is that you're still going to have to work on yourself no matter what. Yeah. So what's going to work depends on a whole bunch of different factors. But I could probably agree with the statement that it's always best to really look and question and be curious about the underlying reasons for it and not to, to maybe delay a solution in order to really uh, understand, maybe even befriend the problem in a way.
1: Yeah. Yeah, I, I think so. Mm-hmm.
0: Could you say goodbye and we can wrap up the, the official part of the conversation? Can I
1: say a, um, I'm trying do, to think if there's anything else I want to say first.
0: Okay i should have said that do you have is there anything else what
1: (laughs) (laughs) rewind Mm, i don't know maybe that's a good place to leave it what do you think
0: it just seemed like a good place to leave it It, it, our hour's up almost on the nose
1: (laughs) well i mean i'm okay with the time um but yeah Mm I don't know. I guess
0: that's it. Sorry. I was rude. I just, it felt like the right.
1: No, it wasn't rude. I think you were trying to be respectful of my time. That's how I read it.
0: I just felt the pause was there. It was just like, okay, there we go.
1: Did I ruin it by like just blabbering on? Or is there still a good place to cut it?
0: Well, uh, if, if like, if you, if you flash your pajama knee, you know, like that. (laughs)